From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, let's not make any pretense. Yes, this is a language podcast, but we've got a musical element. Let's just kick this off with a song. This is Gotta Be This or That. The year is 1945, and the person singing it is Dinah Shore. And this is just a song I've always liked. It's the melody I like in particular. And this was all over Looney Tunes soundtracks for a few years because their composer Carl Stalling liked it. In any case, I've loved this one since I was about 15. Gotta Be This or That, sung by Dinah Shore. This was a song by Sonny Skylar. If you ain't wrong, you're right. If it ain't dark, it's light. If you ain't sure, you might. Gotta be this or that. If it ain't full, it's blank. If you don't spend, you bang. If it ain't bing, it's frank. Gotta be this or that. Who can it be if it ain't me? I know it's not my brother. Can't you see it's gotta be one way or the other? Tell me what I must know. If you don't like, I'll go. If it ain't yes, it's no. Gotta be this or that. What I want to talk about this time is something that I've been writing a little about academically, and so it's been on my mind, and that is that English is not normal. The more you hang around in linguistics, the more languages you mess around with, the more language histories you learn, the more you realize that this language that I'm speaking right now, although it has many advantages for mundane and often unfair reasons, this language is not normal. And by that, I don't mean that it's extraordinary. I mean that English is weird as languages go. And I actually find this one of the funnest things that I know about language. And yet it's very hard to perceive it because it's the language that we speak and it's the language that's spoken by so very many other people in the world. English can feel so normal, but it's actually a highly abnormal thing. And I want to share with you how it's abnormal. And what I mean specifically is that when we think about language, we have to think about the history of Homo sapiens. And the history of Homo sapiens, as far as is known now, goes back about 300,000 years. And we might suppose that language emerged then. It's the way I tend to think of it. Now, it's also possible that Homo erectus had language, in which case language goes back about 1.8 million years. That is Daniel Everett, another linguist view, and I am pretty convinced of it. But let's be conservative for now. Let's say that it's 300,000 years. The thing is, for most of that time, humanity was quite different from what most of humanity is now. The Neolithic Revolution, the beginning of large-scale architecture and the development of what we call civilizations, that's only 10,000 years ago or so. And so what that means is that for, say, 290,000 years, what humanity mostly was was relatively small groups living on the land. Language developed there. So anything that happens to language after that is a departure from what language normally was, what this evolved to be. And we can get a sense of what language would have originally been like from the relatively few, for example, hunter-gatherer groups that are still around now. Now, of course, they are living in the modern world and they change just as everybody else does, but still you can get hints. And if you get a sense 
of what normal language is, as in something close to what language would have originally been like, you see that English is just the oddest thing. So I'm just going to give you a few ways that what we think of as perfectly natural is actually weird. One of them is that we have an elaborate system of numbers. It seems like the most natural thing to be able to count to 10 or to be able to count to 20,542. If you're messing around with another language, one of the first things you want to know is what are their numbers? But you know, the truth is that it is quite possible to be a perfectly normal and complex and nuanced language and not really have numbers. And there's evidence that that's the way language very often was until not too long ago. And one way that we know it is that among hunter-gatherer groups, it's not uncommon to not really have numbers or to only have, say, one and two, or maybe one, two, three, and four, and that's it. That is perfectly normal. It is not the normal human condition to walk around thinking about concepts like 42, because the truth is, if you're a small group and you're living close to the land and everybody is in intimate contact all the time, you don't really need to specify 42, Frankly, you can see the things in front of you, and to the extent that you need to know how many of them there are, well, you all know because you're all looking, and as far as there being 42 of something, if you think about it, why would you ever need to specify that? That might be something that happens during trade, but suppose you don't trade with many people. So, example, the Piraha, this is an Amazonian group, and they're in Brazil, And they've been studied by Daniel Everett and various other people. They have, if you're looking for numbers, they have one and two. Like if we were learning the Piraha language, we would think that hoi is one and then hoi is two. Of course, they only are different according to the tone, oddly enough. But hoi, one, hoi, two. But that's not really what they mean. So first of all, we might think it's rather odd that all you have is one and two. Then again, they don't really have that. That first word, the hoi, doesn't really mean one. It means a small amount, like little bitty thing. So roughly one, but really just, it just means kind of, then hoi doesn't mean two because it can be three. What it really means is a little more than hoi. So they don't really mean one and two. The Piraha don't have numbers. And this is a perfectly normal condition. They happen to have gotten a lot of press for various reasons, but there are other groups that are just like that. And it's interesting, the way the Piraha got press was something that kind of stuck in my craw, because the idea was, well, the Piraha turned out not to be very good at math, and it must be because they don't have numbers. That always struck me as kind of backwards. It's not that they're not good at math because they don't have numbers. It's that they don't have numbers because they don't do math, i.e. they have no reason to count. That's a different thing. Imagine if you found some group of people who, for some reason, wear no clothes. And the headline was, tribe wears no clothes because they don't have words for clothing. No, they don't have words for clothing because they don't use clothes. Same thing here with the numbers. But in any case, still, from our perspective, it is neat that people can get along without numbers. This is not a perfect correlation. There are hunter-gatherer groups that have you know, the numbers that we would expect. Often, they have borrowed the numbers from other groups of people. But still, in especially South America and Australia, there is a tendency, and that is that a hunter-gatherer group will have few or no numbers. And that is certainly a legacy of the fact that 
Original renditions of humanity did not need to do long division. They did not need to talk about 516 because everything was just right there and you could tell. You ask a woman, how many children do you have? And she has five. Well, there doesn't need to be a word for that if you're standing there looking at the five. She might do something with her fingers, but that's about it. And let's face it, as far as the fingers go, how likely is she to have 13 children so your hands will take care of it fine? And I should say, also that I always had an intuition about this just from reading too many books, but people have actually, unlike me, gone and done the work. And the correlation here is something that was discovered by the linguist Patience Epps, Claire Bowern, Cynthia Hansen, Jane Hill, and Jason Zentz. So they're the ones who did the work. But that means we having this 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then 11 and 12. That is not the way a language has to be. And language that's real, in a way, doesn't have labels for those abstract mathematical concepts, because you're just holding it all in your hand. Something else like that. Red, pink, orange, apricot, yellow, goldenrod, green, aquamarine. No, no, that is not normal. Having all of those words for colors and not words for colors where you're saying something like the color of a robin's head or something like that, but really words for colors that only mean the color, these dedicated color terms, as we call it. That is not the way a language has to be. And all evidence is that language did not start that way. Now, I did a show about colors um, some years ago, and a lot of you seem to like it, but that means I'm not going to repeat what I said there, except to say that you can be a language where really all you've got is black and white. And then with everything else, if you need to specify, you'll say the color of a strawberry, the color of a rose, the color of a frog. And that'll take care of it, especially in a society where basically everybody is face to face. And so you can even say the color of her t-shirt. And everybody knows what color her shirt is. And there you go. So piraha is useful for this again. They have something where we would think they were saying black and white, but really what those two words mean is dark and light, which is something a little different than black and white. And that's all they have as far as anything you would even start to call color terms. And you could even push it and say that they don't have words for colors at all. And then, as I noted in that show back in 1958, you have black and white. A language can just have black and white. If it has three colors, it's not going to be black and white and then green. Never. It's black and white. And then the next one is always red. Then if you've got more than that, it's black, white, red, and then either green or yellow. And they kind of toggle. Then you go from yellow to green or from green to yellow, but it's always one of those. And then if you have more than them, then the next one to come is blue, not brown, but blue, because brown comes after. Then you get the other colors. And that's been shown to be a very strong universal tendency around the world. You see it again and again. So, for example, I was um, paging through a grammatical description of an obscure but interesting Polynesian language called Tuvaluan the other day for reasons that need not detain us. Tuvaluan, yes, it does have a pretty name as Polynesian languages tend to. It's like Tuvaluan. And I was just looking at this and I was thinking to myself, hmm. Let's check out the colors. Just I'll bet nobody has happened to bring this language into the color term database. And so in the back of the book, they had the colors. And wouldn't you know, there's black, white, red, and yellow. 
After that, it's the color of the alligator. I don't know if they have alligators, but the color of this bud or something like that. They have basics, and it's exactly in that order that you would expect. Or another example that I've always enjoyed is in Saramakan. That's this Creole language that I'm always talking about that is spoken in the rainforest in Suriname, created by runaway slaves who made new lives in that rainforest. Their descendants are still there today. And Saramakan is English words with a lot of Portuguese words too, and then a grammar that is profoundly impacted by one African language in particular called Fongbe. And so it's an interesting hybrid and also new, as in centuries old, language. And it conforms to this color term pattern perfectly, including little things that don't make sense until you know how this sort of thing works. So for example, egg yolk in Saramakan is egg red. Be is the word for red. It's an African word. It's a word from the language fongbe. And so bebe uriobo, red of the egg. Now, why red? It's not that the yolks are scarlet colored or something like that. It's that if you are a language that is developing, well, orange comes late in the game. Orange is after brown. That's the color of a yolk. Well, if you don't have orange, what's the closest thing? It's red. And so naturally, Saramakan, when developing, is going to say the red of the egg, because if you're not distinguishing orange in your language yet, you can certainly see it, but if you're not distinguishing it in your language, red is going to be probably the closest thing. And so, bebe uriobo is something that tells you about how these color terms work. In any case, if we're on the colors, then why don't we do black and tan? And by that, I mean, let's do some early Ellington. I love the, the grimy sound of these early recordings. I mean, even when they clean them up still, in this case, for example, we're listening back 94 years at this point. And this is black and tan fantasy played by the Ellington band. This recording knocked me to the wall when I first heard it. I first heard it, I think, in 1990. It's just such an arresting composition. And it has a name that has the color in it, which gives me an excuse to share it with you. Listen to this. go on about that cut forever. That trumpet, that growling trumpet, that was Bubber Miley. That sound just turned everybody upside down. And it definitely turned me upside down when I first heard it as a poverty-stricken graduate student way back. And I still love that cut to pieces. English is also weird because we have too many goddamn words. 
And I think we're pretty proud of it. We kind of like the idea that there are these dictionaries that you know, should practically have their own address. And we think that our language is mighty because it has all these words. But no, that's actually a weird excrescence. There's a kind of elitism in it, you could say, pushing it. But still, there is an argument. And that's because think about what we consider a word. So, for example... You know what expiate means, because it's a word we actually use. You know what expatriate means. Get out. Okay. How about expatiate? Did you know there's that word? I only know it because it was in a language arts book that I used in, I think, seventh grade. Expatiate means to go on and on and on, like me now. Now, we might say it's nice that that's in the dictionary, but have you ever used it? And if you have, have you ever heard anybody else use it? I'm not sure I have ever seen the word in use, and I read a fair amount. It's a word in the dictionary, but what's it doing there if it's known by so very few people and there's so many other words that you could use? Or another one, condign. That's C-O-N-D-I-G-N. Condigan. Condign. Condign punishment, a punishment that fits the action. Well, it's condign. There seems something British about that word condign. Do you know that word? I don't. I mean, I see it every now and then. I always have to remember what it means. I don't know the word condign. I'm telling you about it as this exotic object, but I don't know it. I don't use it. And I don't really see what the point of that word is. Did you know that there's a word lithesome? You can imagine what it means, but did you know that that exists? And you maybe knew there's also a word lissom. Do you use them? I've seen them maybe in poetry or something like that. There's so many words like that. Now, don't get me wrong. In most languages, there is some kind of ceremonial vocabulary. So there's the basic vanilla vocabulary. Sorry, folks. I know a lot of you don't like it when I say vanilla. So let me have something else bland. The Rice Krispie vocabulary. But no, somebody's going to say they really like the flavor of them. So what about the... Um, Let's leave it with the Rice Krispies, because let's face it, I mean, really. So, the Rice Krispie vocabulary, and then there are other words that you might not learn as an outsider for a long time, if ever, used in various other situations. It might be some sort of initiation rite, it might be ceremonial, it might be at funerals, or it might be informal speeches. So, that is part of being a language. But the thing is, in languages used by people living close to the land, they don't have as much vocabulary that isn't used very often as we do in English. And note that those things are for ceremonies, whereas with expatiate and condigan and lysum, what are they for? It's not for ceremony. And with lysum, maybe poetry, but nobody's talking about expatiation and condign in a poem. They're just these really obscure words that sit there for no reason, or the reason is because writing which comes along very late in the game. Homo sapiens, 300,000 years. Writing only goes back about 5,500 years. Very late in the game. Writing means that you can scribe down these words, and maybe they're used more at a certain time than they are now. You can scribe them down and gradually build up this thing called the enormous dictionary. And you can say, well, that's a word because expatiate is in there. But in what sense is it a word. And what's it for? And, you know, there are also ones in the dictionary that really aren't words. So expatiate. Well, it's there. All right. But do you know that in the dictionary you can find, if the dictionary is enormous, Ruth. So ruthless means that you don't have any mercy. So it follows that there used to be a word Ruth that meant mercy. Use it in a sentence. And he showed her no Ruth. It's unusable. It's not a word at all. And yet you can find it in the dictionary and not always marked archaic, just Ruth. And the idea being that, well, you didn't know that one, 
what? What's it for? That's not a word at all. Or happy. Okay, well, there is a word, hap. <laughs> Use it in a sentence. Luck. Well, I guess I'm out of hap today. Well, I sure wish I had had more hap in the casino. It's just not a word. And yet there it is in the dictionary. Languages that are real don't have this. And so, for example, if you are people living close to the land and the language isn't written, and remember, most languages aren't written. The vast majority of languages are never written down except maybe by missionaries or, you know, the occasional you know, document or something like that. Most languages are only talked. And so they're just, yeah, their mouths full of air. If you're using a language like that, well, some people might know more words than others. But if a word goes out, then after nobody's alive who remembers it, it's gone because there's no way to have written it down. And so the size of the vocabulary of a language like that might be several tens of thousands of words. And that's a whole lot of words that can cover anything that a human being needs, including the nuances. But not, not a million. It's just not a natural way for a language to be. You know what else I don't know what it is? Spelt. You know, I know that's real. I know that's a real word. But you know, you're at the farmer's market and there's like that stand and there's flour and there's rye and they've got some different kind of corn or something. Then they have spelt. What is that stuff? I've never known. Something else that's weird about English is how long our sentences can be. For example, I was um, at my office the other day and I realized that I had never quite looked over. Daniel Everett is going to come up again. There's a grammatical description that he co-wrote of another language of Brazil called Warit. And not wari, wari. You have to do the glottal stop. And so I was looking through it, and at the end of it, he has some texts, as in people just speaking the language. And it reminded me of something, which is that linguists have found that, for example, even educated English speakers typically talk in packets of seven to ten words at a time. It all depends on what you call a sentence. But people don't talk the way we're trained to write. There's speaking, and then there's writing. And so this person is talking about, you know, what the myth of how corn came to be, I think it was, in Warit. And the way it goes is this. It's actually, it's a neat story, but everything is very telegraphic. And that's the way sentences are in casual speech in all language. So Warit, never used in writing this story. They planted all of it. It was a small garden. The garden wasn't big. It was small. They planted all of it. It's all planted, Father. Okay. Then time passed. Time passed and passed. Finally, the corn said, I will get big. Finally, its flower said, I will burst open. They all burst open. Finally, it said, I will have grains. When they tore and looked at it, the corn has grains, father. Stop touching it. Okay. And it goes on and on like that. And, you know, that sounds kind of like the Goldilocks story in, in the pacing. Except if you dredge up one version of Goldilocks today, then you have sentences like this. One day after they had made the porridge for their breakfast and poured it into their porridge bowls, they walked out into the wood while the porridge was cooling that they might not burn their mouths by beginning too soon, for they were polite, well-brought-up bears. What is that? And I mean, there's a kind of a beauty in it, but nobody does that in Wari because this is something that only happens when you've got writing. That kind of sentence is something that you can do when you can create it very slowly and when maybe you can look back over it with your eyes a couple of times if you get lost. And while they were away, a little girl called Goldilocks who lived at the other side of the wood and had been sent on an errand by her mother passed by the house and looked in at the window. 
that sort of thing. None of that in the way language would originally have been. Now, there are ways of being artful with language other than having long sentences. You can use you know, your arcane vocabulary. There are things you can do with intonation. There are things you can do with tone. There are things you can do with sentence structure besides making things too long. There are things you do with sounds. But the idea that a sentence can be the tapeworm that we're used to in written English and that then we learn to an extent to speak because we spend our lives engaging writing, that's a, a weird thing because the way language originally would have been for, say, those first 290,000 years is what we would think of as relatively telegraphic because it was only spoken. Speech probably evolved in order for bands of humans to get together and scavenge big dead animals. I would put my money on that. And when speech evolved for that, it had nothing to do with the elephant, which in its putrefaction, has, that's not what anybody was doing. You were just going and getting that elephant and fighting off the hyenas. Nobody needed to talk the way the New Yorker is written. I think Robert Lobiondo will not be surprised at what I'm going to play now, because we were talking about Goldilocks, and there was a musical in 1959 called Goldilocks. It was about silent film. You can imagine how that went. However, it was a delightful score written by the same guy who did Leroy Anderson, who did my favorite Christmas carol, Sleigh Ride, and I've played a bit of the overture of this on the show before. Now we're going to actually have one of the songs. This is the opening number. It's called Give the Little Lady. This is Elaine Stritch singing, for those of you who know who she is. And it's just catchy. Here's Give the Little Lady from the unfortunately titled and unfortunately faded musical Goldilocks. No tears for me, boys. I'll tell you what I'm going to be, boys. The perfect lady the way I planned. So give the little lady a great big hand. Rag time, I'm through now. No honky-tonk piano will do now. It's Bach for me at the baby grand. So give the little lady a great big hand. I'm through pretending this Ashen who has found her happy trunk I was born in is attic bound. So you take the gay time. For me it's gonna be PTA time. I found my way to the promised land. So give a little lady a great big wonderful by the way, give the little lady, that was a catchphrase. Texas Guinan was a speakeasy proprietress and former actress who was famous in the 1920s for saying, as people walked in, hiya, suckers. That was one of two things that she was known for saying. The second thing she was known for saying was when she would bring women on to perform in these places, she'd say, give the little lady a great big hand. And so that's what this is a takeoff of. You can have more show. You can have more of all of Slate's podcasts. You can have a little tag at the end where you hear things that nobody else does. And the way that you can do that is to pay a nominal fee, and that way you get the tags, and you also don't have to listen to any ads. This is a program called Slate Plus. You find it at slate.com slash lexicon plus. 
For the first month, you only have to pay $1 for your Slate Plus. And in addition, for the podcast Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, you get whole extra episodes if you just join up with Slate Plus. And this is partly something that we do because we need your money because of the you-know-what. And also, it really is a great deal because you get more stuff. So, for example, I frankly haven't decided what I'm going to do the Slate Plus segment for this episode about. But the only way you can find out what thing I add on, what song I might play, what strange thing about some language you've never heard of might be, is to get Slate Plus and hear a part of this episode that otherwise will be forever hidden from your experience. So, finally, there's one other thing about English that is really not normal in terms of what language would have been like for a good 290,000 years before agriculture creates civilizations that create the need for extra land, which means that people start conquering each other and settling across vast territories. And what I mean by that is that English is too easy as languages go. And of course, English is a nightmare in many ways, but you should see what other languages are like. And that is especially often the case with groups that are particularly small and perhaps isolated. And so there is a pardonable intuition that you might have that languages spoken by people like that are maybe going to be less complicated because their lives are less involved with the horrible things that make our lives so difficult. And maybe they meet fewer people. And so maybe everything is going to take it relatively light in terms of grammatical structure. But no, it's the other way around. If there is a small group of people living in relative isolation, you can be quite sure that their language is going to be so complicated that you can't quite imagine how anybody could speak it. And that's the way most languages would have been until the Neolithic Revolution some people have reconstructed. And I'm almost certain that they're right. And that means that a language that's relatively straightforward, like English, that's something that would only have happened later. So for example, I'm looking right now at an old peanut strip. And it's Charlie Brown and Sally, and they're talking about drawing. It's my favorite of all the strips. And I'm just looking randomly at one panel. Charlie Brown says, try drawing just one side and then fold it over and trace the other side. That's an ordinary statement in English. Notice how few suffixes there are. So, for example, try drawing just one side and then fold it over and trace the other side. Just that one suffix. That's because English doesn't have that much of that kind of thing. Nothing is tonal. It's kind of one word at a time. There are intricacies in there that I could talk about, but it's easy to think that a language is like that. Try drawing just one side and then fold it over and trace the other side. No, not at all. So an example that's one of my favorites, there's a language called Iao. Iao is spoken in in New Guinea, on the island of New Guinea on the western part, so the Papua side. And it's only ever spoken by several hundred people at a time, and they are often monolingual. These are people who live in relative isolation. So here is what language normally is. You can think of it that way. You look at how this language works, and you think it's almost like they're trying to make it unlearnable. So Iao is mostly monosyllabic. The words are real short. And though, it's tonal. There are eight tones, depending on how you count it. It's tonal. And the way the tones work is just dazzling. And so, ba means to come. Okay. Now, if you say ba, that tone, ba, that means come right to a certain spot. 
So there's the difference between come and come right to a certain spot. And it's not that ah is supposed to sound like somebody coming to a spot like ah, ah, something like that. No, it's just arbitrary. But ba, come. Ba, come right to a certain spot. Then ba, which is a third of eight tones. Ba, that means to throw at. So it doesn't have anything to do with coming at all. Okay, so let's go to another syllable. Do it. That means to see. Okay. Now remember, ba was to come and ba was to come right to a certain spot. Do it is to see. So you'd think that do it would mean to look right at something or something like that. No, it means to have looked over. So not look over, but to have looked over. It's perfect, as in the perfect tense, as in Elvis has left the room. So then you have do it, and that's C, do it, to have looked over. Now, ba meant to throw at. It didn't mean to come at all. But with do it, do it does have to do with the eyes. It's to watch as opposed to just seeing it, watching it. And you just have to know. One more. Da is ate, as in, you know, having eaten. Now, remember, ba is come, do it is see, da is ate, not eat, but ate. And you just have to know that it's in the past tense. Then da is to have eaten. So da was to have looked over instead of to have seen. But with da, it stays in the family. So da ate, da, to have eaten. Da is to load something into a vehicle. <laughs> just, this goes on and on and on. You just have to know. So notice it's not just that the tones make these completely different words. And so it's not about like, say, horse and mother and scold and hemp like in Mandarin. These tones are grammar to an extent. And so da ate, da to have eaten. That's how you conjugate the verbs. But then not always. And you just have to know. And that was only three things. Eyal goes on and on like that. Janet Bateman is the one who studied Eyal. Imagine what it takes to study a language like this, to learn to halfway speak it and to know what people are saying who are mostly monolingual. It's an astonishing thing that linguists like that do. So Eyal, that's normal as languages go. And then all we've got is try drawing just one side and then fold it over and trace the other side. English is much easier than you'd expect. And so, English is weird as languages go. English is, the best we can say is that it's a very modern thing. What English is, is a new way of being a language in many ways. All these numbers, all these Crayola colors, a vocabulary that's so big that no one speaker knows anything like all the words, these tapeworm sentences. That's weird. That is not the way languages were for most of when language existed. And then in being a language that doesn't have that many suffixes to do the kinds of things that say Spanish does with hablo, hablas, habla, I talk, you talk, he, she, or it talks. We have very little of that kind of thing and we're not tonal. The truth is, if you look at languages around the world, most languages either knock you over with a whole lot of those sorts of conjugational things or crazy gender or usually both. Or if you don't have that, it's going to be tonal and it's going to knock you over with the sorts of things that Chinese does. If you have neither one of those things, it's not common in the world. And it usually means that it's a language that a whole lot of adults 
had to learn for one reason or another, and so they made it easier. And that's something that only started happening in any major way when agriculture and then technology allowed a group speaking some language to impose it on millions and millions of other people and have it settle and spread across vast parts of the planet. What this means is that English seems so normal to our parochial selves in some way, but actually, you know, English is English is a creole of a kind. Afrikaans in South Africa is what happened when Dutch was taken up by people indigenous to that area, as well as some people who were from Southeast Asia. Afrikaans is when Dutch gets a shave, essentially. Because of its history, Afrikaans is considered to be a semi-Creole language. It's not a Creole like Saramakan, but it's semi-Creole Dutch. English, for the exact same reason, is a semi-Creole Germanic language. And in our case, it's two things. For one thing, the Vikings, starting in 787 AD, came over to England. Notice I say came as if I'm there. So they went over to England and they basically fucked up the language. They (laughs) learned it the way adults learn it. And because there was no such thing essentially as print, except for very few people, no such thing as school, no such thing as media, little kids listened to their father speaking English that way and they had no reason not to imitate him just as much as they would imitate their mother. Next thing you knew, crappy old English became what I'm speaking right now. So that happened. And then even before that, there's something a little odd about Proto-Germanic, the language that would have later become German, English, Swedish, Icelandic, Dutch, etc. Even that language took it a little lighter than most early Indo-European languages did. And that ties into that topic that I addressed on a show not too long ago, where I talked about this hypothesis, possibly unprovable, but always fascinating, that Semitic language, Phoenician speakers, sailed up around Europe and settled into what's now Denmark, and would have learned some kind of early Proto-Indo-European and made it, first of all, a little Semitic-y, and then also probably a little easier. And Proto-Germanic is more streamlined in ways that would make sense if that's what happened. But that would mean that English is the way it is partly because of that, if it happened. But then you can get the same thing from what the Vikings did to the language starting in the 700s of CE. This is a semi-Creole language that I'm speaking. And as a result, it's not the way language naturally was for most of its existence and still is in many places today. So isn't it interesting to know that the thing that feels so normal to us is actually rather bizarre? In any case, if we're talking about these issues of simplicity or complexity and the two things playing off against each other, the proper song is clearly One Note Samba, which is one of my favorite of the Jobim classics that America fell in love with starting in the 60s. And you'll be able to hear why it's called One Note Samba. And of course, the harmonies underneath are delicious and not one note in any way. The proper singer for this is, if it's not going to be somebody singing in Portuguese, it's going to be Nancy Wilson, because she's always the proper singer. So this is the English lyric. We're going to go out on One Note Samba because, frankly, it's just good. It's just good.
You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Oh, Nine Nasty Words, my new book, coming in May. The final chapter is a brief exploration of Motherfucker. And of this show, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. I had to, I'm sorry. And I am John McWhorter. Pour 